I want this morning to, <clears throat> to preach on the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, which we read earlier in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. The Lord describes the people to whom he spoke this parable in verse 9, where it says, And Jesus spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And that's a perfect description, isn't it, of the sin of self-righteousness, the sin of pride. The scriptures make clear that God hates self-righteousness and that often when people themselves consider themselves to be righteous um, God considers them to be self-righteous and full of iniquity they consider themselves to be in good standing with God but God sees them as lost in Ezekiel his servant Ezekiel in the Old Testament in chapter 33 verse 13 it reads when I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live if he trust if he trust to his own righteousness and commit iniquity all his righteousness is shall not be remembered for his iniquity that he hath committed he shall die for it in other words putting it more simply if uh, if you trust in your own righteousness you're heading for a great fall. And the te- this tendency to trust in ourselves, in our own self-righteousness, is accompanied often by a tendency to look down upon other people who we consider to be less righteous than we are. Um, that's a tendency in all of us. One of the prayers in the Jewish Talmud goes like this. And see if you can see the self-righteousness in this prayer. It says, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a slave. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, ruler of the universe who has not made me a woman imagine a prayer like that in other words thank you Lord that I am better than others thank you Lord that I am um, saved that I am included and that these others are excluded because they are unrighteous and I am righteous now you may have already switched off and thought, well, this sermon is not relevant to me today because I'm not self-righteous. If you've done that, you've already proven to yourself that this parable is absolutely relevant to you. Because there's nothing more important than making sure that we are truly relying on the mercy and righteousness of God through faith than 
relying on our own estimation of our own spiritual standing and spiritual performance in the Christian life. God hates human pride. We could say it's the original sin, the most original of all the sins, pride. And wherever it rears its head, God opposes pride. And and even God even opposes pride when it rears its head in the church. We know this because of the writings of the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5 exhorts the believers to be subject one to another and to be clothed in humility. You know, that's the context um, of submission in the Christian church. This isn't really my subject, it's an aside. But, you know, the submission that we need within the church, younger to elder, the congregation to the elders, none of it works unless the church culture is all of us being subject one to another. And each one of us being clothed with humility. It's the same in marriage. We often emphasise that wives should submit themselves to their own husband. But the context of that is always nearly missed out. Because the the, uh, context of that is Ephesians 5.21 submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. In other words, in marriage and in the church, no one is supposed to be on a power trip. We are with a loving and lowly spirit of humility to submit ourselves one to another, all of us. And it's in that context that the proper relationships within the church should take place. But the rest of 1 Peter 5 verse 5 says something remarkable. It says, and this is talking to Christians. It says, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Really what that is saying is that if God's people insist on walking in pride, there will come a point where God will even come in and oppose his own people. Well, that's something, isn't it? And we know this is true because we go to Revelation 3 and look at the church of Laodicea in in chapter 3. We read of a church there that was full of pride and self-righteousness. And God comes in and opposes them. He says in verse 17... Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see, they thought they were doing fine. Didn't need anything. But God had to oppose their pride. And where's the church of Laodicea disappeared off the face of the earth? You see, God has a way of seeing right through to our hearts. 
and exposing our true condition and his estimation of us can be very different to the estimation we place upon ourselves. can be very different than the reputation we have with other people. And we all have an inbuilt tendency to overestimate ourselves and to underestimate other people. We all have a tendency to compare ourselves to others in a favourable light. Now, I'm just as bad. I was preaching more to myself this morning than to you. But you know, when the preacher raises an issue of sin, a particular sin, um, what happens? Well, people, the congregation scan the room, don't they? Mentally scan the room, thinking, I wonder how so-and-so is getting on with that. Or, I bet you so-and-so is struggling with that. You thank God that you are superior, that you're a superior Christian and that you're in a superior church. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other Christians. We need to be careful. We know what we, we, there is a right way of thinking of that and a right way of speaking of that, but there's a wrong way. If it's full of pride, it's wrong. We mustn't think, we mustn't say, thank you, Lord, I'm not as... The Pentecostals, the Arminians, the Episcopalians, or even this charismatic. Because God may have a surprise up his sleeve. It may be someone else than you expect that goes home justified when the final roll is called. And what about all those people that are beyond the pale? The people who my politics and world view have no time for whatsoever thank God I'm not like them thank God that the church is free of people like that the teenage climate activist yuck how awful the LGBTQ person oh dear How I despise them and and how my religion justifies me in in despising and looking down on people like that. How different I am and how different my people are. Do you know, if you, you, and I'm exactly the same, if you have any thoughts like that, then this parable is relevant to you today. Dear friends, this parable is like a time bomb which explodes our preconceptions. It turns everything back to front and it disrupts the typical way people think about the right way to, the way to be right with God. And like a surgeon's knife, it cuts to the deepest problem in every one of our hearts. The one thing that will take us to hell in the end if it's not dealt with the sin of pride, the sin of self-righteousness. So let's come to this parable. First of all, the scene, the scene is set. The scene is set in the temple. This was the second temple built by Jews who had returned from exile in Babylon under the authority of the governor Zerubbabel. And every day, Two perfect lambs were tied to the altar and sacrificed by the priest. The first at 9 a.m. Roman time and the second at 3 p.m. 
Roman time. Rather confusingly for the Jew, the evening started at 3 p.m. They, they, they had a different time system altogether. That's why the 3 p.m. service was known as the evening service, which is a bit tricky. So we'll stick to the Roman time, I think. Every day, there were three prayer services at 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3 p.m. And the third prayer service each day was called the Hour of Confession. And it looks likely that the scene that Jesus is painting here in this parable is this 3 p.m. service because the two prayers that we read of are confessional prayers. So he's painting the picture of the 3 p.m. prayer hour in the temple. The characters within the scene are a Pharisee and a tax collector. Two very different characters and two very different classes of men in their day. The plot of the story is the two prayers these two men make to God. And the parable ends with a, with a plot twist, a surprise ending. And, the, and as we will go on to see, this plot twist reverberated around the Jewish world. It was like a dam busters bomb. I don't know if you know about the dam busters. The, like a dam busters bouncing bomb, sort of blowing up everyone's preconceptions, turning the world upside down. It was a radical and disruptive message about who is right before God and how a man becomes justified before God. So we could call this the parable of salvation if we wanted. It's really about salvation. And it turned everyone's thinking upside down. This is a shocking parable. Jesus contrasts the Pharisee and the tax collector and he contrasts God's judgment on who is right before him with man's normal judgment of who is right with God. And so verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. These were two groups in society that would have been very well known in Jesus' day. And so let's very briefly just describe not these individuals in the story, but the, these two general groups, the Pharisees, first of all. The Pharisees, literally the separated ones, were a Jewish religious group which emerged during the Second Temple period. And their teachings really form the basis of rabbinic Judaism, which we have today. They were highly influential in Christ's day, and they would have held all the top jobs in society. In many ways, from the outside looking in, there was a lot to admire and to commend about the Pharisees. They strictly adhered to the law of God and to the writings, that's Moses and the prophets. And they didn't just do this as an academic exercise. They applied the word of God to their lives. 
They strongly emphasised the sovereignty of God. They believed in the day of judgment, a final day of judgment. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. Josephus in his antiquities wrote this of the Pharisees. They also believe that under the earth there will be rewards or punishments according as they have lived virtuously or viciously in this life. And the latter are to be detained in an everlasting prison, but that the former shall have power to revive and live again. They were sound. They believed in angels and spirits. Acts 23 verse 8, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. In many ways, the Pharisees were the evangelicals of their day. They, they, they were the reformed of their day. However, the Pharisees were guilty of adding traditions to the law, which is often referred to in the Gospels. But the detail of these additions they made to the law were, were huge, much bigger than you get from the New Testament. And we find the detail of this in the, in the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a collection of Jewish oral teachings and discussions covering every aspect of life from fasting to, um, to prayer to divorce to keeping the Sabbath and so on and so on. And it forms the first section of the Jewish Talmud, which is the central text of Jewish law and tradition. And the Pharisees' approach to the law was to make sin an external matter rather than an internal matter. If something was externally present or absent, it made it a sin or not. So, for example, if there was a rule about what a Sabbath day journey was, that, you know, originally on a Sabbath you must not go any further than a Sabbath day's journey. But in the Mishnah, it says that if prior to the Sabbath a man was to, uh, to go to the desired destination and leave some bread and water there, then that would define the length of the Sabbath day's journey. Well, there's nothing in Moses about that. So whether the bread and the water was there, made the, it made the journey a sin or not. And that's just one example. How they externalized the law. They made law keeping an external matter rather than an internal matter. It was an external religion and no longer one of love to God. They were legalists. Legalists. A legalist is someone who believes that law keeping is the ground for our acceptance with God. So that's the culture, that's the religious approach that this Pharisee in this story would have had. So then, tax collectors, who were they? Well, the tax collector was a notorious and despised figure in the society of that day. The Jewish tax collector worked for the Roman Empire to collect taxes from the 
people of Judea, which of course was under Roman occupation. And therefore they were seen as collaborators. There's nothing worse, there's no one more despised as there in society during a time of war or during a time of occupation. Someone who collaborates with the enemy, who betrays his own nation. They're, they're hated and quite rightly we, we would hate them too. And these tax collectors were greedy and corrupt. They were the Romans set a tax limit, but they, they turned a blind eye to the tax collecting tax collectors um, farming more tax than was really required, and they pocketed the difference. And so the tax collectors were, were getting rich off the backs of the poor. That's, that's why Jesus' close association with tax collectors along with prostitutes um, was so shocking was so shocking in his day we, 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 we read that and we think well it's something or nothing it's not, it was, an, it was a shocking thing that Jesus did to mix with collaborators against the enemy of his nation and so Pharisees and tax collectors but then let's think of these two guys as individuals let's think of these particular this particular Pharisee and this particular tax collector well we notice some similarities there aren't, aren't many first of all the similarities are well they're in the same church if you like they're in the same temple service they both pray part of the evening service was it included a time of private prayer, the prayer of confession? Both addressed God in their prayers, but it's really in the difference, in the contrast between these two prayers that the lesson of this parable comes to us. So these two men, a tax collector and a first, you know, it, it, the people of their day, if you were to ask them, which of these two men would be justified? Which of these two men would go to heaven when they die? Who would you think that they would choose? Surely it would be the man of God, the Pharisee. Surely it would be the reverend Dr. Pharisee, rather than the treacherous quizzling from the tax office surely it must be the Pharisee that would go to heaven and the prayer of the Pharisee gives us all the biographical information we need on, on uh, the tax collector and on, and on himself and we know it must be the Pharisee who is saved because he fasts twice in the week he gives tithes of all he possesses well, this is a sort of sort of chap that we we would want fast tracked into church membership. He'd, he'd even he'd even give uh, he'd even boost up the coffers of the offering box. He was truthful, no doubt, in that he was sexually pure and honest in his business dealings. He was in every way you would think. A solid fellow. 
Behold, people would say, the good religious Pharisee. He must be the one who will go home justified at the end of this parable. I mean, it couldn't be the tax collector because he cheats on his wife. He commits adultery. He betrays his nation. He lives a sinful, sexually promiscuous life and he's unjust to the weak. He thinks nothing of gaining wealth off the backs of poor families who can hardly feed themselves. You can't afford to lose a penny and he takes more tax off them than is even legal. Who could be worse? The tax collector is a hell-deserving sinner. He could never be justified before God, people would think. This man could never go to heaven. And then we read of the two prayers. The two men pray. And what a contrast between these two prayers. And it gives us an insight into what was in their hearts. It's often, it's often when we really get to know someone is when they pray. We know what's in their heart. Let's first of all Think of the prayer of the Pharisee. Notice in verse 11, first of all, the posture that he assumes in prayer. It says, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself. He stood and prayed. This was a man who was at home in church. He knew how to act in church. He knew how to present himself. He was confident in prayer. He stood. This was a, a familiar place to him. And then notice the emphasis within his prayer. He addresses God, yes, but he's really justifying himself to God, isn't he? He's comparing himself to the tax collector. He refers to himself constantly, I, I, I. And he refers to the works of religion that he has accomplished, his tithing. He's praying. And the implication of what he's saying is, Lord, you're really fortunate to have me on your side. Lord, you're fortunate to have a person like me on your team. What a way to pray to God. But then there's the prayer of the tax collector. What a difference. What a contrast. Notice the difference in posture and body language. He really didn't know how to behave in church. We'll call it church for the sake of understanding. He he was far too emotional, wasn't he? He was too demonstrative. Maybe this was the first time he had been to church for a long time. And he really had to pluck up courage to come to the temple and face all the dirty looks from the other worshippers. What are you a tax collector doing here among God's people how many unbelievers have have come to church once and they've never come again because no one's ever greeted them no one's ever properly welcomed them you know the church doorkeeper or the church welcomer 
is one of the most important ministries in the local church and we all have a responsibility in that. This man, this tax collector stood, it says, afar off. He came in the back hoping that his idea was to slip in and to slip out without being noticed. All he knew was that his conscience was screaming at him and all he could feel was the great burden of guilt that he felt. He had to get right with God. He couldn't bear it anymore. And, and yet he felt so unworthy to be in this holy place, in this holy temple. He could not even lift up his eyes to heaven. And like a movie playing in his head, all of his frauds, all of his um, fornications and adulteries, all, all the children's faces who he had stolen money from, they all f- replayed in his mind. He was a sinner. He had sinned against man and he sinned against God. And such was his anguish that he smote his breast. He literally thumped his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What a difference in in that prayer to the self-righteous prayer of the Pharisee. He didn't realise it, but he prayed the greatest prayer in the world. One prayed by millions of people in a similar way over the Christian centuries. God be merciful to me, a sinner. In Greek Greek orthodoxy it would become known as the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. In fact, in the original Greek, the Koine Greek here, uh, uh, verse 13, there is a definite article which renders the phrase, God be merciful to me, the sinner. God be merciful to me, the sinner. You see, he was so conscious of his own sin that he, he, he was totally oblivious to the sin of, of everyone else around him. The Pharisee, was, he was scanning. He was thinking, whoa, look at that one. Look at, look at me compared to them. But the tax collector, he was the sinner. He felt he was the only sinner. Because he wasn't comparing himself to anyone else. He was in the presence of God. He was comparing himself to God. God was dealing with his heart. This was an encounter with God's holiness. Very similar to Isaiah in chapter 6 where he saw the holiness of God upon his throne. And he heard the chorus, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And Isaiah said, woe is me for I am undone. And a very similar experience here with the tax collector. Lord have mercy upon me. A sinner. You see he he was in the presence of God. And God was dealing with his heart. Lord I'm an unclean man. 
I need mercy. Is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me today in this temple service? That's what he was saying to God. Lord, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. Dear friends, this is, a, this is a man truly meeting with his God. And when you really meet with God, you don't start thinking of the good things you've done. You don't put any store by your fasting or your tithing or your praying or your going to church. Your acts of charity, you don't compare yourselves to others. You're done with comparing, you're done with despising, you're done with trusting in yourself. You're done thinking you're righteous. Well, I want to ask you today, have you ever come to the place this tax tax collector has arrived at? Have you ever truly seen that you are a sinner? You see, both the sinner and the Pharisee had another thing in common, which we could add to the list. They were both under the wrath and judgment of God. They were both in need of God's mercy. And so let me ask you today, are you more like the Pharisee or more like the tax collector? You're lost either way. But are you, the, do you identify as the Pharisee or as the tax collector? Do you justify yourself before God and only, only have, really have a sense of your own righteousness before God on account of the things that you have done? The things you think you've done for God and the superiority of your lifestyle over the lifestyle of others. Thank you God that I'm not like them. Well, you're as lost and as damned as the adulterous fraudster, the tax collector, with all your religion. Well, I, I, I've never done anything like that. I'm, I'm in a Christian family. I have standards. I keep to the standards. Forget it. It's what's in your heart that matters. It's God's judgment, not your judgment. It is God that justifieth, Paul says. God be merciful to me, a sinner. There's much more to the tax collector's prayer than first appears in our English translations. It sounds to us like just a plea for mercy, but it was more than that. It's not sufficient just to cry for mercy. This tax collector pleads for mercy on the basis of what God has done. He pleads pleads for mercy on the basis of what God has done. Remember this hour of prayer. As well as the first hour of prayer. Coincided with the sacrifice of of a lamb the daily sacrifices what's called the perpetual offering before the Lord the second lamb was brought to the altar at noon at 12 the lamb was given a drink 
and the lamb was sacrificed at the ninth hour, the Roman time of 3 p.m. And this lamb would be inspected for any fault, for any defect, and it had to be perfect in order to be sacrificed. And this wretched sinner, this lost and guilty sinner, beating his breast, crying to God for mercy, did so on the basis of the sacrifice of the Lamb. God be merciful to me, a sinner. The word mercy there in the, in the Greek is helaskomai, the root word of the root of the word propitiation in the New Testament. And it's the same verb form as the word for mercy seat, which we read earlier on. As this man cries for mercy, he is saying, Lord, on the basis of this sacrifice, be propitious towards me. May your anger towards me turn away. Be gracious to me. Be literally mercy seated towards me. Be not angry with me. But be gracious towards me, not for anything in me or anything I've done, but on the basis of the substitutionary death of this lamb. And surely as he compared the greatness of his sin with the weakness and the smallness of this little lamb, he would realise that this must be speaking of a far greater sacrifice to come. But this was God's way for now. And he would throw himself on God's mercy. He would throw himself on all that this sacrifice symbolised and represented. He didn't really understand the full impact or import. All he knew was that he was a great sinner. And that God was merciful. Well dear friend in the... In the light of the full gospel we know that the daily sacrifices of the temple and that once a year event, the day of atonement where the, the lamb that was slain in the temple court, the blood was taken and sprinkled on the, on the mercy seat in the holy of holies. Just once a year the, great, the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, the day of atonement. We know that these things speak through a type of a real, true atonement. The atonement, the, the death, the death of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, we know from the New Testament, is the Lamb of God. He is the antitype of the type. He is the true and real Lamb of God. He was sacrificed. To take away the sin of the world. And Jesus the Lamb of God. Just like the temple lambs. Was thoroughly inspected. He was looked at from every angle. To see if he was perfect. He was tested all through his life. And yet every type of temptation came his way. Temptation from Satan. 
All kinds of testings from his disciples. How long shall I be among you? How long shall I bear with you? Jesus said. He was inspected by Pilate. But Pilate could find no sin in him. This is a a righteous, sinless lamb. He was inspected by the Jewish authorities and in the end they had to invent false evidence against him because there was no sin in him. He had not sinned in any way. He was a perfect lamb of God. Jesus was condemned to the cross at about the same time as the first lamb was brought out to the altar. The first lamb was given a drink from a golden cup. The Messiah was crucified at the third hour, 9am Roman time. Exactly the same time as the first lamb was sacrificed in the temple. The second lamb was brought to the altar at noon, given a drink and sacrificed at the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And as Jesus was on the cross, the whole land turned dark from an eclipse of the sun from noon until when? Until three in the afternoon. And the Messiah gave up his spirit to God at three in the afternoon, just as the second lamb was sacrificed in the temple. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the fulfilment of the Old Testament sacrifices. And you know, just as that tax collector placed all his faith for mercy upon that lamb that the priest sacrificed. What do we do to be saved? What do we do? We look at the cross, we look at the Lamb of God and his sacrifice and we say on the basis of that, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's what you have to do to be a Christian. And then the story ends with a, with a twist, with a, with a surprise ending. Against all expectation, the tax collector is the one who goes home justified, not the Pharisee. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. What a thing. And do you not think that this story went around Judea like wildfire? Wow. This is like a, like I say, like a time bomb, like a dam busters bomb going all around society, blowing everything up because it turned everyone's conceptions upside down. And you know, it's only a little while later that we read of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector in Jericho meeting with Jesus and Jesus says come down from the tree Zacchaeus for today I must come to your house and Zacchaeus was saved
no, no longer a parable, but a real, a real conversion. You see, dear friends, this is more than a story. This is salvation. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that is available to you. Whether you're a Pharisee or whether you are a tax collector, you need to go to the same place, to the cross of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, and you will be forgiven, you will be justified, you will be cleansed from your sin, you will be joined to Christ forever, you'll become one with him, you'll be joined into the church his body, not just for time, but for eternity. Dear friends, the message of this parable is, there is mercy. There's mercy for you. Not, not in yourself. That will take you to hell. If you think there's anything in you that can save you, it's only in the sacrifice. It's only in the mercy of God. Well, I invite you to come to him today for mercy and for salvation. Amen.